Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every 20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. The Athletic. The race is on, and with Carlos Sainz describing this as his toughest season, we evaluate his performance and delve into Ferrari's struggles in what it expected to be a title-challenging year. I'm Ed Shaw, and joining us with all the answers are Scott Mitchell-Mount and Mark Hughes. Well, Mark, this is an odd start to our Emilia-Romagna Grand Prix review podcast, isn't it? It is indeed, yes. So we'd, we'd normally be waiting for P2 now, wouldn't we? We'd, we'd, we'd have done P1, we'd be waiting for FP2. Um, so, yes... Um, Terrible, terrible shame that uh, what's happened over there, and uh, and uh, we, we just uh, heard that Ferrari and F1 have made some donations to help the people out there. So uh, yeah, just wishing them all the best, really. And this is pretty much small fry in comparison, isn't it? Yeah, of course. Yeah, that's the really important thing, the relief effort that's going on. Although I should say you've let people see behind the curtain there because you've given away the fact we're actually recording this on Friday rather than our normal midnight on Sunday slot or something that we normally do. <laughs> so, I was sorry about that. You'll have to edit that out. Yeah, yeah. I'm sure people will forgive us the uh, the indulgence of getting a little bit ahead of this. And Scott Mitchell-Malm, fresh from getting yourself a box of internet so you could record this podcast. Yep, I've been introduced to the wonders of uh, mesh systems and uh, sensible broader wi-fi setups um because this is i think this is the second podcast i've recorded from from my new house that i moved into sort of 10 days ago at this point or 12 days ago if you're listening to this instead of as we record it i don't want to make the same mistake that mark didn't give anything away um so yeah i've uh one one of the problems is that my setup down here work-wise is down in the basement and unfortunately the uh internet router locations means that the original wi-fi setup was not good enough but i went out this morning i got a box of internet three magic boxes set them up around the house and here i am in fully connected glory so you're now providing tech support as well having learned on that i'm looking no 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 no. do not do not misunderstand this for uh, do not misconstrue this as someone who understands what is going on right now i do not understand it it's magic i love it i love living in the future i'm just benefiting from it i could not tell you how it works or how to fix it if anything went wrong. So box of internet was pretty accurate in the uh, grand scheme of things. So Absolutely. Uh, the good thing is you're a little bit more insightful when it comes to Formula One topics. So that makes you a little bit better qualified for the, the podcast. So we will get into this makeshift set of topics. It's a chance to talk about a few things we maybe haven't talked about in so much depth so far this season, which is always interesting. So Mark, we're going to talk a bit about Carlos Sainz. Let's just start off by evaluating his performance so far this season. What have you made of his 2023 to date? Bit disappointing, isn't it? Um, as in twenty two and twenty one, he started a little bit on the back foot, but by this time in those previous seasons, he'd worked his way back onto the pace. But there's something about this car which is preventing that. He says he understands it, but is just finding it difficult to do. It, high speed reestability is the problem with this car, um, but worse than just a shortfall of downforce, it's it's an inconsistent downforce, so it's easily disturbed by different attitudes of roll, pitch, or wind. And he, he's less of an intuitive driver than Leclerc. He's someone who is very good at understanding 
what the requirements are and then going about meeting them. But when there's just no understanding of how it reacts, then it's impossible to carry the commitment he needs. So also setting the car up with more downforce to mask the, that problem wouldn't leave Sainz with enough op, enough options for how he wants to drive elsewhere around a track and it make would make the car not responsive enough and wouldn't rotate enough in the slow corners. And that rotation is a real strength of this car. It's probably the best car on the grid into a slow corner. It's worth real lap time, so he can't afford to surrender that. So he's a bit walled in. And basically, it needs the rear inconsistency to be fixed before he can really get access to his natural place where he can drive instinctively rather than having to think about it. Although it's a different car, this is the the usual kind of thing that Sainz struggles with a little bit, that inconsistency. There was a bit of that last year. And obviously that Renault season when he struggled in the first part of it, the full Renault season, that is, the rear instability was the reasoning for that. It's Yeah, it's been strange because it's, it's not been a bad season from Carlos. It's just been a little bit solid, hasn't it? I guess Baku was the, the big low point for him. And I never really got a good explanation for an external reason beyond his own driving why he struggled there. I think that was just something that magnified his lack of confidence in the car while Leclerc was just hanging on at a track where he's always brilliant at, although Baku, I don't think Leclerc's any more brilliant there than he is at a lot of other tracks because he's such a a wonderful driver. So yeah, you, you can understand why it's been pretty uh, pretty tricky for science. Well, in, in, in Baku, um, they, didn't, they didn't really go into much of a post-mortem afterwards because they piled into Miami a few days later and it was such a different circuit so I don't think they'd really got to the bottom of it and they kind of just chalked it up to being such a specific circuit you know as as street circuits do one one that really relies on a driver's confidence and feel signs had started on the back foot from the first session that wasn't a weekend format that really lent itself to to experimenting and actually Make, making those kind of big choices that uh, allow to uh, allow gains to to actually be made so it quick very very quickly turned into a weekend of survival which is exactly what it looked like on track you uh, to to the point where um i and i joked about this to um uh carlos's manager and his trainer that when uh, leclerc crashed in sprint in the sprint shootout do you remember I said to you, Ed, in Slack, oh, C- Carlos, I just assumed it was signs that was in the wall because he'd had such a such a difficult one. Um, and I, I think their attitude to let's just believe that this is circumstance specific kind of was justified in Miami where signs was much more solid. And I think actually across Azerbaijan and Miami, you saw the problems of this Ferrari manifest itself in two different ways across the two very different drivers. In in signs, you had a driver f- for whom the, 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 the car left very, very limited in Azerbaijan because he didn't have the confidence. But then once he was able to get his head around it in Miami, he was able to perform at a pretty solid level and get a decent re- result out of it. Whereas for Leclerc, who was able to live with the 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 I don't want to say looseness of the car, but the that unpredictability. He was able to drag that lap time out of it. He can live with it. He can take it to its peak in a way that signs can't. And he did that in Azerbaijan. But that style and the, the downsides of the of the car, the risks the risks that come with it, paid. Uh, sorry, they paid off in Baku, but then they punished him 
in Miami where he was really on the ragged edge all weekend, crashed in qualifying, having gone off in practice as well, and then was actually quite muted in the race because he was basically driving within himself because he'd lost that confidence and didn't really understand how hard to, to push it lap to lap, corner to corner because of how much the balance was shifting. So Sainz, I think, is weaker than Leclerc in terms of the peak, but that consistent level of performance, if you if you take it as an average, I should say, rather than a consistency, I think Sainz is doing okay. It, it's just not quite as good as Leclerc and certainly nowhere near his peaks. Yeah, I think that's fair. And even Baku, I would say Sainz came away with fifth places in the two races there. Obviously, there was the sprint as well. And he even said after the race that he felt not so long ago, even a year ago, he might well have made a serious mistake in the race because the car was so leery, but he was able to recognise his limitations and, and sit within it, if you like, which, okay, I'm not going to say it was a great weekend, but being able to calibrate and recognise when you're struggling and if you try and kind of brute force your way out of that struggle, you're just going to end up in the wall. It is quite good. So at least he came away with a fifth place. And yeah, it's interesting, Mark, isn't it? Because it's not been a bad season for science by any stretch of the imagination. It's just a a driver who's got a few little limitations doing a, a decent enough job in a, in a tricky scenario, isn't it? So we don't want to sort of make out that we're massively criticising science on this. It's just an indication of the subtleties that can turn your season, if you like. Yeah, it's right. It's a sort of, sort of circumstances that just changed around him a little bit in a way that doesn't favour his strengths and weaknesses. But, um, you know, as the car gets better, he'll, I'm sure his... Um, deficit to Leclerc will come down with the improvements in the car, and uh, that's that's got to be what they everyone's putting their hopes on, not just not just Sainz. And of course, we should note that Sainz has outscored Leclerc so far this season. People will cite that as proof he's doing better. Obviously, points can be an unreliable witness. He's forty-four points to thirty-four ahead of Leclerc. Obviously, that would be pretty much reversed had Leclerc not had the failure in Bahrain that would have made a big difference because it would also have changed the Saudi result as well because he wouldn't have had the grid penalty so I don't think that really says anything at this stage particularly on a small sample set but it does also yeah support the idea it's hardly been terrible. And and just to go back to something that Mark mentioned earlier with like what Sainz has actually said about the situation and that he understands the car better he, he is in a much better place mentally in dealing with this and and how he's driving than he was 12 months ago when that 2022 car really threw him early on and he was he was not just unsure about how to drive it quickly he was being caught out by it you know having crashes spins getting frustrated and he didn't know why he 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 was just being surprised all the time by its limitations whereas I'm not saying that he is totally in control of this year's car, but he kind of understands where its limitations are. So he, when it bites him, it, it bites him in a way that he's kind of expecting it to, if you, if you see what I mean. He, he still, and he still can't, like, as I was saying before, he still can't deal with that in the way Leclerc can at his peak, but, he, but he's getting there. And I, I think he understands a bit better where to go on, on setup, which is one of the reasons why I think that format in Azerbaijan probably hurt him, because I think if... I think if you take Carlos at his word and believe it, believe him when he says that he knows what he needs to change in the car to gradually give him that feeling, it stands to reason that over a full Grand Prix weekend, with your two practice sessions on Friday, a night of digging into the data, further changes in Saturday practice, and then getting it really ready for qualifying, 
I would be amazed if Sainz was anything more than a couple of attempts off Leclerc by the end of that process. But but he didn't have that opportunity. And that's a weakness in in, in his game. You know, the, the, the very best drivers will get onto it very quickly and they will deal with the limitations a bit better. But I don't think it's um I don't think it's a damning weakness. I think it's just part of how different drivers are and, and how they behave. You look at it different example would be Alpine last year and maybe to a degree this year with someone like Esteban Ocon versus Fernando Alonso, a driver who builds up to his peak rather than a driver who can go out there and hit the peak straight away. And you can argue the toss over who has the higher peak, but that's just different ways of going about it. And I'd say as a general trend, it's a great quality of science that you can say, as Mark did, that as the season goes on, we know we'll get on top of it because that's what he does. And it might be easy to say, well, that's not saying much, but... There's lots of drivers who would just have problems with it and just keep headbutting the same wall effectively, saying, oh, it's not doing this, it's not doing that. Science works really hard, intelligently delves into it, reprograms what he's doing, and generally gets to a pretty good level. That's just the the kind of driver he is. Now, Scott, the inspiration for this podcast was a story you did for The Race, which is based on a Carlos Science interview. We'll link to that in the episode description. And if you're looking for it, it's headlined tougher than any other year, Inside Ferrari's 2023 reset. So can you just explain why he characterised this as such a tough season. Yeah, so it, it's less about him personally and, you know, struggles with the car, results, whatever, deficit to Leclerc, anything like that. It it relates specifically to that mentality of where you are when you come into a season and how it then shakes out in reality. So Ferrari had a, a good winter. They thought they'd had a good winter. They, I guess they'd hit the targets they wanted to. The data that they saw in the simulations, the way the car felt in the simulator, all correlated with a, a good improvement and an improvement that they thought would have them fighting for wins again at the start of the season and obviously hoping it would mean a full-scale championship challenge against Red Bull. I was there at the, at, at the car launch And I remember talking about it on the podcast and um, writing about it afterwards, this unmistakable air of optimism around the Ferrari camp. They they weren't even really trying to hide how positive the outlook was for the coming season. And within, I would probably say, half a day of that car running on track in Bahrain pre-season testing, that melted away. And over the course of that three-day test, reality started to sink in that something wasn't quite right and there were weaknesses in the car relative to last year that they didn't expect. And on top of that, Ribble moved the goalposts. So suddenly the deficit was huge. And they, as as Signs put it, they all went into the start of the season genuinely believing they would have a front-running, race-winning car with a championship bid on the line. And they're more than half a second off the pace. And the the the, the toughness there comes from having to recalibrate and be and pick yourself up from that winter of really believing that you were going to make a big step, having such high hopes and expectations and and this specific positive outlook for the season and having that crumble before your eyes straight away, knowing that all of that work wasn't obviously for nothing, but isn't going to be rewarded with what you hoped it was. And on top of that, there's now a mountain of work to get through to try and unpick the problems that you've encountered and then also fix them so that you improve through this season and you don't screw up next year as well. That's why it was so tough because there's more expectation and pressure on Ferrari externally as well as internally than any other team. So to have come out of that process on the back foot with this big deficit, 
knowing that they weren't going to achieve what they wanted to achieve this season, having to try to fix it, motivating everybody, making sure everybody's on the right track is immensely difficult. So it's less about the drivers specifically and more about Ferrari as a whole to have to pick themselves up and bounce back from an enormous, enormous setback at the start of the season. Yeah, and it reflects the fact that Formula One, there's a very slow turnaround time, isn't there? There's a big lag between taking action and it paying off. So when you're on that nice trajectory of things getting better, as Ferrari had been on for the previous few years, recovering from that nadir in 2020, you're relatively encouraged because you see that progress. And then you hit this big bump in the road and suddenly you're looking at a huge amount of time to turn things around. But Mark, we should, I guess, talk a little bit more about the weaknesses of the car. As we've discussed before on the podcast, Sainz said that he feels there is a limit on this concept compared to Red Bull. So I guess that reflects how big a journey they're now on to try and get back onto terms, which isn't going to happen, certainly in terms of challenging for a championship, anytime imminently, is it? No, that's that's true, and I, I, I absolutely get what he's saying about the concept because what they had last year was a car which, before they had to turn their engine down, was was comparable in performance with the with the Red Bull. It was just slightly different way of achieving it, and they had um, probably more downforce through most corners, um, but more drag as well. So um, the the Red Bull had a. Better end of straight speed and was generally a bit more raceable, but the Ferrari could sometimes, you know, outqualify it. Um, so there were two different ways of getting much to the, the the same end result. But what Red Bull had done with that their their existing concept this year is is, is really stretched out what has been um, possible, and it's it's it, it's it's not something that you can answer with the, the Ferrari concept. That, that's quite clear. That, that sort of plateaued pretty much like the Mercedes concept is also plateaued. They, they, they've, they've found the limitations of their concepts and the Red Bull have, have still continued fun, demonstrating that there is more potential to be gained from that concept. And um, it, it's, you, you can't do anything else but recognize that and, and, and accept that you've set off in the wrong direction. Maybe you're blameless in that. Maybe you're not. But it doesn't matter. You, you've got to recognize it. And that's, that's rebuild from a new base. And that's, that's where both those teams are at, Mercedes and Ferrari, albeit for different technical reasons. But that, that is the situation they each find themselves in. And it seems Mercedes have been more ready um, there's been a greater readiness from Mercedes to accept that publicly at any rate uh, then Ferrari still seems to be um, suggesting that they, they can they can you know f- find what's needed from this concept but um, science isn't on the same hymn sheet there and I, I tend to agree with science. Yeah and certainly I think we're all now looking more towards next season for the hopes of Ferrari being able to properly take on Red Bull championship wise even if they can do it then so yeah a long road for them ahead. Looking for an assist with your credit card, but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7 US-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. 
Well, Mark, let's come back to what Scott was saying earlier about the confidence that Ferrari had, the misplaced confidence, as we now know it is. I guess there's two ways you can look at it. One, you can say it was a massive blunder that reflects terribly on the team, showed complacency. The other is that ultimately they weren't the only team to have missed the tricks and performance potential Red Bull has exploited. So it's just one of those things. So what do you think it tells us about Ferrari? I think the main thing, the number one thing, is definitely that everyone was caught napping by how big the gains Red Bull was able to make. And we've talked about how they did that in a previous concept podcast. But it also seemed a little odd for Ferrari to define its development direction in terms of another team, i.e. it saw the straight-line speed deficit to Red Bull last year and as a result did a different trade-off between its own downforce and straight-line. But it was a very different car to the Red Bull and it worked very well the way it was. And it makes you question why they didn't choose to keep developing on that path um there have been rumors that say oh benedetto vigna got involved and perhaps had an influence on the direction of the technical team you'd hope that's nonsense but within the politics of ferrari who knows it may also have been that within the constraints of td23 as it came in late last year the potential of developing any further in that direction was deemed inadequate um when we know when they did simulations but either way, it was yes, it was a misplaced confidence. There was not a great big step in performance from last year's car. It is faster, but you know, you, you, you can you can't assume because you've made a a step that everybody else has found you know the, the, only the same step or, or or smaller. You know, it's it's, it's perfectly feasible somebody has found a a bigger step, and then and, and that's of course what what had happened. And of course, it's the nature of Formula One, isn't it? You never know what target you're shooting for. It's all a relative performance game rather than an absolute performance game. And obviously, it does reflect that they've missed something because they couldn't estimate what Red Bull might be possibly able to do. But when we're talking about these gaps, they are so small, the gaps. We're talking about tenths of a second accumulated over laps of three, four miles. So it's very, very easy to get a little bit carried away and people are acting almost as if a, a gap that might be, I don't know, seven or eight tenths on performance, as it generally has been between Ferrari and Red Bull on, in, in the race, is the difference between being brilliant and being absolutely idiotic. But it's nothing like that. It's just a, a small number of things that, that need to be gained. But Scott, what's your sort of feeling on Ferrari for this year in terms of the progress they can make? Because they did have an upgrade in Miami, which was some fairly subtle floor changes but that they did feel made a difference so do you at least have some confidence that they can make some gains because obviously there's there's still potential in their concept to be exploited even if it isn't the most of it and as Fred Vasseur keeps saying if they can be more consistent and make more out of the car then they'll be doing better there's definitely been an element of underachieving with what they've got so far which I think they need to address first and foremost because whatever car they have it's kind of irrelevant if you're sort of varying from anywhere between 80 and 100% of the potential of it. Um, I think what it can achieve this year is probably going to depend on exactly how much the car does change in season, how much it can change in season. Um, I think we're going to have more um, more upgrades soon, probably Spanish Grand Prix now instead of Monaco because at Imola, I think they were going to have like the next phase of what they were changing. So further changes to the to the floor and and some suspension changes as well i think um that that will obviously have a big impact because not to go um not to go into too much amateur detail of uh, what mark was talking about earlier but with the red bull it, it just it just isn't as simple as oh haven't they got fantastic aero like it's just not that that straightforward it's 
its aero and mechanical platform and, and how they've absolutely mastered it. So I think it's encouraging to hear that Ferrari have got what sounds like significant changes coming on the suspension side of things because it does mean that they're looking at more than just, well, that should we just put a new set of side pods on it or something like that? Um, but for a little while, Sainz was a bit of a lone voice, wasn't he, in in Ferrari needing to have a quite significant change and an actual outright change of concept that was being batted away a little bit by the likes of Vasseur and Leclerc in the early races of the season. So I I want to see the upgrades on the car and see how much it's actually changing. I, I want confirmation of exactly how big the suspension changes are or aren't. And I think after after we start to see those changes and then obviously see what that manifests itself in in terms of performance on track, we can have a better idea of what Ferrari will achieve. But they will need to have radical improvements and changes on that car through this season to win a race this year. Win a, win a race on merit, certainly. Um, I don't think it's impossible um, for Leclerc to pull out a bit of absolute magic in Monaco, for example, grab track position and then defend for his life. I genuinely don't think that's out of the realms of possibility, but in normal circumstances, on in normal conditions, on a normal track, then that Ferrari is not going to beat a Red Bull in a straight fight. Um, it needs to improve dramatically. The good thing for Ferrari is that any investment that goes into this year should pay off in the future, because presumably any work they do this year will be in view of a concept change to something with a high performance ceiling. And because of the stability in the regulations, that will pay off in the future. So it's in their interest to work as hard as possible to get big changes onto the car and at the track this season, because it's not just going to be a short-term investment. The rear suspension talk interests me, Mark, because although that's obviously an area they will want to exploit, you're quite limited on what you can do with rear suspension because of, obviously, the gearboxes homologated for the season. You can't change the pickup points there. You can do some stuff outboard. And, of course, it's not just the external geometry, is it? There's internals you can change. So there's things you can influence, but you're working in quite a narrow box in terms of what you can do with the rear suspension. I haven't heard exactly what they're changing. I wouldn't be completely surprised if it's just some aero fairings or something because those are obviously quite easy to uh, to change and teams often do do tweak them. But there is quite a limit to what they can do. Yeah, you're within those hard points that you mentioned, um, the architectural hard points with long lead times, which can't normally be changed during a season. So, um, yeah, they, if they are making any mechanical changes, it's only to vary the characteristics and, and, and you know, how quickly it assumes something through a transient part of the corner or something like that. It's not fundamentally altering the... The way the car is working, and 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 it's it's you know the, the, the it's aero platform. It can only be sort of the the, the transient conditions, if you like. It, it, it might go to one position too quickly at the moment, or not quickly enough, or it may not have enough stability. Um, it won't, once it gets there, you know, in, in terms of how it's um, controlling the the platform and that might be why it's overly sensitive to variations in pitch and, and roll and things like that so those those are the areas that's working on but that's that, that's not going to fundamentally nail a problem but it might alleviate it yeah, and that can be worth reasonable performance if you find a few little areas to change that because that can give you a pretty global benefit certainly in in corners and obviously as Scott said, it's not just aero, is it? F1 cars aren't modular. Everything affects everything else, and the mechanical platform side has an aero implication and vice versa. So it's a it's a very, very complicated thing. So anything Ferrari can do to chip away at it is a positive thing. And certainly, as we've seen in qualifying, there have been times when 
Red Bull's bid on pole, but it's only been by a tenth and a half, two tenths. So, yeah, that, there is an opportunity there to make things a bit more interesting. Coming back to the drivers, though, Scott, one of the things that you mentioned in the science article is that both he and Charles Leclerc are out of contract at the end of next year. What do you make of science's outlook on his Ferrari future? And can you see a scenario where Ferrari loses one or both of them? Because this is actually a, a very nice, well-balanced driver lineup. I would be surprised if Sainz doesn't do a new deal. Um, he, yeah, so you're right. He's out of contract like Leclerc is at the end of 24. There's interest in him, allegedly, from the Audi Sauber side for 26 onwards. Now, I can absolutely see why it would be in Audi's interest if they did want a driver like Sainz to get him in in 25, that final year as Sauber before the Audi full transformation for 26. You know, he gets a year learning the team, learning the car, um, and then he's basically settled in and ready to go all guns blazing for 26 when it's Audi proper. Um, But I think it's a really, really big, um, I think it's a really big challenge to tempt him away from Ferrari in, if it's a straight matchup, he chooses Ferrari every time. I think he's, um, he's very happy there. He feels he's still got to improve as a driver because he hasn't performed at his maximum. Um, he sounds like he really buys into what's going on at the moment and the the Fred Vasseur era wants to give him the benefit of the doubt. Feels that the noise around the team in terms of high-profile personnel leaving and stuff is a little bit overblown and not reflective of what he's seen at Marinello. So he's sounding like a full team player and I think Carlos is quite a genuine person. So I when, when he says this, I, I don't automatically start second guessing him and wondering whether or not he's telling the truth or not um where i think the possibility emerges that he leaves is if he feels that this is leclerc's team 100 and i thought it was telling that in azerbaijan after fred vasseur when i asked him to you know what what's the pitch to keep leclerc how do you convince leclerc that he can actually win a title with you because all ferrari's done is let him down basically so far and he says Charles basically that Charles needs to know, you know, teams are built around drivers. Success comes when a team is built around a driver. And it wasn't an explicit Leclerc is the driver we will build around. And it wasn't a middle finger to signs. It wasn't intended as that. But it was very, very clear that Ferrari views Leclerc as probably the number one route to a title. And Basically, the the op- the willingness to openly state things along the lines of building a team around a driver, I, I don't think that answer's necessarily said in those terms if the question's asked about signs, let's put it that way. So I can see why signs might think, well, do I want to be the number two driver at Ferrari as much as I want to be a Ferrari driver? Or do I want to go somewhere where I genuinely believe I'd have equal crack at it if... I had the opportunity. That That's the window in which I think I can see him leaving. Yeah, and it would depend on what opportunities there are as alternatives. Obviously, you've mentioned the Sauber one, which is an obvious one. We should mention that he's denied that, but we should say that the, the stories that were actually out there about him were that the team and Audi were interested in him, not that he was going there or anything. So actually, both those things can be true. It doesn't mean he's been speaking to them. But he's in an interesting scenario, Science, because I think what you hit on there with Vasseur's answer... I think it did reflect the reality of how Leclerc and Sainz are seen, but it's always been unspoken on the record within Ferrari, right from when they first signed Sainz, 
we know that they saw him as a, a brilliant secondary driver, not even really a number two, a number one and a half. And so I think the fact that they lean towards talking about building it around Leclerc does reveal a fundamental truth, even though we should save a sir subsequently try to distance himself from that and say, oh, no, I was talking about both drivers. So sometimes, yeah, when you're asked a certain question, you're a bit off guard, you forget to put the caveats in. But I don't think, Mark, it's unreasonable to see Sainz as kind of a number one and a half almost. I think he's a really good driver. I really like the way he does things. He'd be a driver I'd very seriously look at. But he's not necessarily the person you would pick if you wanted an absolute number one spearhead there's kind of a, a clutch of the the absolute brilliant drivers the Verstappens the the Hamiltons the Leclerc's who you would have just ahead of him on your list but you'd think well Sainz is absolutely brilliant for the second seat yeah they're very rare talents here your Max Verstappens and your Hamiltons and your Leclerc's um and there's you know there's three four top teams and they have they're led by Verstappen, Hamilton, Alonso, and Leclerc, um, and really that's that's quite a well balanced match in terms of you know the the absolute aces and how many how many seats there are, how many top teams there are to be led, and after that you then start looking right. Well, who would be who you who would you want to have alongside? And he, Carlos would be close up to the top. Um, you know, along with George Russell, and you know that's maybe a guy that's got more potential. But you look into the future. But it, you know, he's at a he's at a level that if you've if you've got a car capable of winning races and challenging for the world championship, he's absolutely going to be winning those races for you. Not necessarily going to have a performance advantage over someone like Leclerc, but you know he's going to be able to you know, fight with it, with anyone. So yeah, he's, he's, he's a, there's no reason why um, Ferrari might, I, I think would be one to uh, not renew. I think they would be very keen to renew. I think he's in, I think he's very much at the front of that second group of drivers and that second group of drivers is very good. And I would put him ahead of Pierre Gasly, Valtteri Bottas, Esteban Ocon on my shopping list if I was a team boss. Yeah, I'd very much agree with that. And to say Sainz isn't quite in the Verstappen class is hardly a, a criticism. He's, he's very close, very good. and That's damning. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and fundamentally, I think his profile as a driver, by which I mean his profile of skills, if you think of it like a, I don't know, like a football manager player profile and you go through the various qualities they've got, he's got a great set of skills that fit in well in a lot of teams. It means the net output's extremely good. But that thing I alluded to earlier about his ability to work through things in a season and get on top of a car, what he brings to the team in terms of approach, intelligence, etc., I think is all very, very valuable. So that's what makes him such a, a good driver for Ferrari. And yeah, I think I'd probably agree with you, Scott, that they might well end up getting sites signed and sealed before they get Leclerc done. And that's actually quite a good position for them to be in because I think no matter what happens, Science is a great person to have in that in that team. And if it's Leclerc or someone else they have to try and go for, having Science locked in would be very, very good. And Science will probably be more keen to sign up, perhaps a little bit earlier than Leclerc, who might just keep his options open just in case, see how things go. We'll get back to the pod in a moment. But first, a word about our partner, Grammarly. No matter what kind of work you do, how you communicate is key. All those emails, reports and presentations are equally important to the collaboration needed to get things done. And Grammarly can help. 
Grammarly is your AI writing partner to help you communicate more effectively and efficiently so you can make a bigger impact at work. I know from experience that Grammarly can help you save time on any writing task and ensure you feel confident about what you've produced. In fact, 96% of Grammarly's users report that Grammarly helps them craft more impactful writing, and their tone suggestions can help you navigate even the most difficult work conversations. Make a bigger impact at work with Grammarly. Sign up and download for free at grammarly.com forward slash podcast. That's G-R-A-M-M-A-R-L-Y dot com slash podcast. Easier said, done. Well, Mark, one of the popular topics on the podcast over the past 12 months has been Mercedes, so we'll move to F1's other big struggler. And inevitably, this topic has to crop up because Mercedes has confirmed it will run the planned package Rimmler at Monaco. How difficult do you think it's going to be to evaluate and correlate such a different package at a track that's hardly made for that? It will still have a value um, because there'll be a certain amount of correlation possible in you know, comparing error loads from simulation just given the package a sort of hygiene test, it won't give a very full answer because obviously the, the speed range of the circuit is very different to that of Imola or Barcelona, but it will have a value. It'll be better than not running it in terms of knowledge. But in terms of the weaknesses the update is specifically addressing, Monaco won't really reward that. The gain should come mainly from high-speed downforce, and so Barcelona the week after Monaco should be a better indication of how successful that update has been. But, um, yeah, definitely a value in running it and, and staying with it. Yeah, it's effectively now a preamble to Barcelona. I think they wouldn't have introduced it for Monaco if it was just a Monaco-Spain doubleheader without Imola existing, because that wouldn't have made much sense. But the fact that they had it coming in for the first race of a triple header indicates to me they were well stocked in terms of spares, for example. And there are problems, of course, in terms of once you converted the cars in terms of spec. And we've talked about the fact they needed to change some things under the skin as well to fit the side pod geometry on, etc. It's logical they have to crack on with it and, and work on it. They'll just hope for a nice clean weekend but we should say Scott it's quite a good contrast isn't it because Monaco was horrible for Mercedes last year wasn't it remember the car just didn't have the suspension travel just was an absolute nightmare yeah it was a real low point for them so it would be um it'd be an interesting turnaround if 12 months later that same race was the moment that the 23 season kicked into life um I'd be surprised uh, if it would be such a, a sudden transformation in, in in fortune, I think the nature of what what they're bringing presumably is going to um, take some time to to really optimise. And Monaco is just so unique. Who who knows? They might get there and find that they've got other demons within the car that uh, have been lying in wait in a similar way to to a year ago. Um, it. it it's a it's a big loss for the, for them to 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 have not had the the, the Imola weekend on a conventional circuit, um, but I can see why if you've built the cars up around the um, the the new um, the the new components, if you've readied all your spares and your stocks with the the new components, then you're not just gonna um, put yourself because what happens if you then run the old component components that you've only got basically one set of damage it in monaco anyway and then have to switch the new the, to some part of a new spec it, it wouldn't make much sense so get them on the car learn as much as you can as quickly as possible and a few days after monaco you're at a very conventional very well-known very useful testing venue of barcelona anyway so you're going to get that conventional running straight away and you'll have done a little bit of a shakedown in the first place 
Yeah, exactly. I think it'll probably not really cost them much at Monaco and it'll mean they'll start the Spain weekend with a bit more knowledge and data, which is no bad thing. I guess you could say there's certain characteristics of the car they can really focus on, which is quite positive for them there. But again, as we've said before, it's not going to transform everything. One thing we should also talk about, Scott, is that another aspect deferred from Monaco is the introduction of those blanketless wet tyres. So the wet tyres now won't have any form of tyre warming, just bang them on, out you go. They'll warm up. The intermediates remain as they were. They still have the blankets. But what a place Monaco is uh, to introduce that sort of thing. Yeah, I, I obviously I, I trust Pirelli F1 and the FIA, the people that make all these decisions, that the tyres are so well understood and, and you know well performant in, in, in tests that there's no reason for them not to be introduced. And obviously, if they'd made their debut in I- Imola, they'd have been running in Monaco that weekend anyway. But just on just on the off chance that there's something about them that doesn't quite work as as expected, if the drivers are caught out, it does feel like the kind of place that like is a very high risk or um, there, there's a extremely little room for error. Uh, so if you're going out and scoping out the performance of a set of wet tires for the first time and you're surrounded by barriers. That is quite a daunting and challenging prospect. But at the same time, I don't really think there's ever a situation, with the exception of maybe when Max Verstappen and when Max Verstappen and Fernando Alonso hit the track, where a driver is absolutely, you know, pushing the limit on the first lap lap or two on the set of wets anyway. So it's probably not too much of a problem. I just find it quite interesting that there's just this extra variable if it's wet in monaco it's already enough of a pain in the backside for everybody let alone to have a new set of wet tires to get your head around or a different kind of wet tire to get your head around well and you also have to remember that the first time if it's wet at the weekend the first time any driver has an off or hits something running those wets that's going to be the first thing they're going to blame isn't it because they're drivers and that's what they do and remember last year we had a couple of drivers hitting the wall before the car, the, the race was even started under safety car, didn't they? I think Lance Stroll and Nicholas Satifi had incidents. But we should say, Mark, that although it sounds quite extreme to have blanketless wet tyres, the wets are for the worst of the conditions. They are low temperature working range tyres anyway. So it's not that impossible that they can work quite well. And the feedback from drivers who've tried them have actually been quite positive. Yeah. And I mean, the, the, the wet tyre relies a lot less on chemical bonding with a surface obviously as uh compared to a, a slick or even an intermediate um because there's sort of two components to a tire's grip there's the mechanical grip how it just latches on and there's a chemical how it bonds with the surface of the track so uh, because you're not relying as much on on uh, the chemical action the bonding um it, it's not quite so temperature sensitive anyway it'll it still needs to be at a certain temperature to work properly but it, it's nowhere near as difficult to get it to that temperature as it would be with a with a slick or even an intermediate yeah it's a, it's a good example of how slightly counterintuitively having a blanket that's wet is perhaps the uh one of the easier ones to do and obviously there's still all of that going on in the background about the tire heater ban for next year which is currently off but there is a mechanism by which it can be voted in depending on the recommendations of Pirelli and the FIA based on testing but that's a separate issue but this blanketless wet is now in for the duration so that wasn't a one-off thing for Imola that was a a permanent addition so it's just an interesting little extra storyline to look ahead to for Monaco. Well thanks very much to Mark and Scott for this very unusual Emilia Romano Grand Prix review podcast. We will have a race to look forward to this weekend. Head to the race.com and don't forget the hyphen. Plenty to read there even 
Britain if there was no Grand Prix at the weekend. Check out our other podcasts, including our IndyCar podcast. Of course, the Indy 500 is ongoing and we'll have had poll day by then. And also check out our YouTube channel. We're turning our attention now to Monaco, so stay with us for everything you need to know from the world of Formula One. The Athletic.